This is Carrie. And this is Jenny. And you're listening to Honestly Unfiltered. This week on Honestly Unfiltered, Carrie and I sat down with Hollywood actress Breanne Davis. Breanne is also a writer, producer, and director. She can be seen in Lucifer and on the History Channel 6. On the big screen, she starred with Jake Gyllenhaal in Jarhead and many others. Brienne has over 10 years of recovery as a sex and love addict. She is the host of the popular mental health podcast, Secret Life. Secret Life features inspiring true confessions from an eclectic group of guests, unpacking a plethora of taboo subjects. Brienne's latest venture in the Secret Life brand is her debut novel, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, which she released this past February. It was instantly on the bestsellers list on Amazon, and if you haven't read it, you should run out and get yourself a copy. We hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed speaking with Brienne. Brienne, we just wanted to thank you so much for doing this interview because, Aww. but just um, being willing to speak with us and share your story with the listeners that we do have, it's just, it takes so much courage to me for you to be able to do that. And I'm just, we're extremely Oh, well, I'm glad to be here. Honestly, anytime anybody gives me a chance to share, share my experience, strength and hope and help mm-hmm. someone else is just an honor to me as well. So thank you for having me. And I know you get interviewed and I'm obviously, But I mean, like, you probably get the same questions all the time. I would. Yeah, sometimes. Is is there a question that no one ever seems to ask that you wish they would? Oh, my God. That's a good question. Um, Let me think about that. One might pop in my head. I don't know off the top of my head right now, but. Yeah, I love that question. So there you go. That was a new one. All right. Yeah. Hey, if you don't think of an answer now, later on, you'll you'll think of it and then you'll be ready if somebody else ever. People haven't asked me and don't, if they did, I can't remember, but they always think like with sex and love addiction, you are going to like get over it. It's like a thing you get through and you get over it. And it's actually a part of your life forever. It's not something you can, it's like trauma. Like it just stays with you and you have to, every day I have to work to not let those addictive tendencies take over. I mean, it makes sense to me because it's like that with any addiction. Yeah. No matter what it is, you always have to work at it. Yeah, but they don't think because you're addicted to people, you know, like, oh, well, if you learn how to have healthy relationships with people, it shouldn't be a problem, right? Or you get in a marriage or or you find someone that's like the love of your life. And it's like, no, that has nothing to do with it, actually. It's an internal job. And it's got to be, it just has to be really challenging, especially because, of course, with, you know, for a woman to be talking about it, there's usually all this stigma, of course, as we all know, if a guy does it, they're like, hey, good for him. 
Yeah. Oh, no, there's so much stigma. That's why I didn't talk about it for over a decade. You know, that's why a lot in our women, especially, you cannot get them to talk about it because it's so much stigma and shame. I mean, the love addiction women are more willing to talk about, but not the sex addiction part. And I always say that like sex addiction is, you know, you use your sexuality as currency. So that could be in a marriage when you do something sexual to get your partner you're manipulating and controlling your partner. So you can be right. a sex addict and just be with one person. You don't have to like go out and sleep with a bunch of people, but yeah, right. there is still a lot of stigma and shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I really hope the more that this is discussed that um, it removes that and so. women feel more confident to come forward and discuss those challenges. So that way we can all support and love each other because most people, let's face it, have some form of addiction or there's addiction in my family, my daughter's dad, mm -hmm. um, my late husband, you know, like it's just everything. My mom's a gaslighter, you know, <laughs> and when you, <laughs> I have, Ugh. I have many of those in my family and narcissists and uh, you're just like, and martyrs like put themselves on a cross. <laughs> like I have those. <laughs> And, you know, there was even things um, when I was listening to your audio book mm -hmm. where it's like those lights go on where you're like, oh, shit. yeah, either I know someone who does it or even like I was thinking back, which sounds so nuts. You're going to be like, oh, girl, 100 years ago. But like even in like middle school and part of high school, you know, it would be a game yeah. like to see if I could get this boy to like. Yeah. And I think about it now, I'm like, oh my God, that's horrible. But I did it. Everybody does it. If you think about society, everybody's always trying to get somebody else, trying to like find that person. And once they get them, they usually then are like, oh, that's it. That's the chase. And it's like mm -hmm. that, that constant. And I agree that everybody has an ism, even if you don't come from an addictive family, like my family. Yeah. When I did my generational, I looked down the line and I saw, you know, alcohol, it, alcoholism with my great, great grandfather. And every generation, it was like workaholism, overeating. And it, it went through different stages with different people. And for me, it was sex and love addiction. So it's like, I mean, I, I talk to people now, people are addicted to Netflix, social media, mm. like porn is a huge one. That's a lot of problems right yeah. now that especially in my world, people are suffering so much, especially young boys are getting almost impotent. Like they don't feel sexual, their sexuality anymore because it's so desensitized. And yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's so heartbreaking. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Because it's like, they're just being robbed of something yeah. really beautiful. No, it, I'm telling you, and that is the reason I spoke out. That's the reason I wrote the Huff Post article. That's the reason I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I don't ever feel like I wrote the book, but <laughs> it was because this younger generation was coming in the rooms at 20, 21 saying, I cannot connect to another human being. I cannot use my sexuality. I feel so desensitized. And then young girls were coming in, you know, trying to live up to this what society puts on them look sexy over sexualizing themselves because it's it's what is it that like positive sexuality or owning your feminism that huge movement which i think it's great women should own their sexuality it's ours we can do what we yeah, want with it but, but 
it's like now it's gone so far where you're giving it away when you're not keeping it safe because it is yours. Does that make sense? No, it really does because um, and it starts so much younger too now. Very young. They do. And there, there is um, someone I know that's um, near my daughter's age. How old's your daughter? She's 27. Okay. Yeah. And her husband's 31 and she's pregnant. <laughs> First baby. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> um, I'm excited, but then I'm like, ooh grandma just makes me feel old. <laughs> so I have her on my Instagram and PS, I suck at social media. Like I rarely go on. I don't post things. I just don't care. Yeah. Good for you. Keep it like that. <laughs> yeah. I just don't. So, but if you, at any time you go on this girl's Instagram or her Instagram story, girl, mm -hmm. I, I just want to drive over to her house because it's not that far from where I live and mm -hmm. tell her to put some clothes on. Yeah, I, I, I'm the same. Yeah. You know, like you were, and I'm not like some freak show prude. That's not it. But I mean, it is, I just look at her and I'm like, stop doing this. Yeah. Stop it. What is wrong with you? I know. I hear you. And that's why it's getting worse and worse. When I started 12 years ago, it was like you go into a room and it, I was the youngest one and there'd be like 30 people of all ethnicities, all generations, you know, there would be like an A-list celebrity, a janitor, a, a school teacher. And now I go in and there's like, the rooms are like 80, 100 people. And a lot of them are the young, young over-sexualized like we have to tell them to put on clothes because there's a lot of rules in the rooms you yeah you that you can't wear certain things you can't say certain things it's pretty much the safest place in the world being in a sex and love addict room like honestly like i would hands down rather hang in a room with a bunch of sex and love addicts <laughs> and recovery than the real world because there's so many rules and you have to stick to them or they'll ask you to leave right and that's really important too because then people feel safe. Oh, it's the safest room in the world. Like I rather hang out with my guy fellows than anybody else. Like they yeah. are the safest people. And I mean, it's like people knowing they've done wrong in their life and taking accountability for it are my favorite type of people. Well, yeah, because no one's perfect. Yeah. But we just have to own our shit. Yeah, I guess that's but what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, like, but, and you're right though. Not everybody wants to own their shit. No. Not, I would say very few, you know, people always do ask me about like Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and all these people that have said they were sex addicts and that they went to, you know, but the thing is, I say they've taken no accountability, you know, it'd be different if Harvey Weinstein's, yeah, if he stood up and said, hey, listen, I use my power and my everything to get what I want from women. And I definitely need to make mm -hmm. amends for this. And I sincerely apologize. And now I've seen, I've hurt a lot of people. He's not one yeah. said that. So if he did come in the rooms and said that, I would forgive him because he's a fellow right. addict, but I have no forgiveness for someone or I have, I try to have empathy, but sometimes it's hard when people don't own their own baggage. Like we all have baggage. Everybody, You does. can't carry it around in the, Right? You can't carry it around in this world and use it against people now. 
That's terrible. Yeah. That's one of the lessons I've really taught my son is to own your mistakes. And it, it's ironic because the other day I was on the phone with his, one of his counselors, cause he has ADHD. I do too. And, um, every year we do it. Yeah, I know. I know. And every year, and one of the stories you told related, uh-huh. made me relate to him. Um, but his, his counselor said that what they love about him is when he, it gets caught like, daydreaming or not doing his work and they call him out on it he oh he always says you're not wrong and takes accountability for accountability for it he doesn't yeah make an excuse but what what broke my heart in your i don't think it was even in your book i'm it might have been in the podcast interview mm-hmm. that you did with your husband and you told the story about how you cry your mother was crying when you didn't yeah. know your abc's yeah. And it set you up to feel like you failed for the rest of your life. Yeah, stupid. I, I I carried that that shame that I was stupid or something was wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah, it was brutal. And he feels that a lot of times. Yeah, he, he because he was so young that and I owe him constant and he's so talented and so smart. And I'm constantly yeah. encouraging him because he I'm like, look, you have ADHD. You think differently. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you're stupid. You're far from it. No. And I think, you know, that that's also why mm-hmm. I, I put it out there that I have ADHD, that I am a working actor, that I have to memorize dialogue, that I wrote a book and I couldn't even mm-hmm. write a complete sentence in English class. But I, it took me a long time to realize, like, my brain works differently and I'm not stupid. It doesn't make me stupid because I twist my letters or I say, you know, 80, it says 86 and I say 68, like there's nothing wrong with my brain. And I also realize it just works faster than other people's. And and sometimes it doesn't, it's so fast. It doesn't connect with my voice. So tell him to hang in there. And I, the only thing I wish I would have said is I wish I would have told my mom how painful that was. And then we could have had a dialogue. Right. So I didn't have to carry that around for the rest of my life. You know, that's what I, I, if I could go back and change anything, that's what I would change. I don't know if you're from the generation. I know, I know we're quite a bit older than you, but I don't know if, if, if it was still prevalent with your parents where with our generation, we didn't talk about those. Oh no. We were not allowed to talk about anything. When I was in school, if you had ADHD or any of that, they, sho- they shoved you into a classroom with special people and that was it. You, you never talked about it again. It wasn't like they had all the help that they do now. No, I just got drugs. I got like just Ritalin. I just got Ritalin shoved down yeah. my throat. And then it would turn me into a zombie. And I was like, I don't feel good. And they're like, well, you need it. And it was just so there was no discussion whatsoever. It was just like, here, take this. Something's wrong with you. You have to take this pill. And that was it. And then, you know, doing the SATs and all that. He experimented with medication, but he didn't like it. And it made him like a zombie. So ultimately, we just let it go. And I said, just we'll we'll figure it out. Which brings me to, do you, um, Mm -hmm. because obviously since addiction runs in my family so prevalently alcohol Mm -hmm. and drugs um do you ever worry about your son um picking up addiction habits and do you do anything to try to 
like my son, he has witnessed a lot of drug overdoses from friends outside the family and, you know, kids at school. And he, he knows what the consequences are of doing drugs and he sees alcoholism in my family. So it's always been an open conversation Mm -hmm. with us. And he he hasn't yet to experiment and he's 17 thankfully because i know Mm -hmm. a lot of them are at that age but do you did they teach you anything in the groups to try to watch out with the children you know we we always think if you heal yourself then you heal the family so if i stick to my program if Mm -hmm. i show up for a meeting every morning with my son, my son's only three and a half, but I'm on a meeting every morning when I'm feeding him breakfast. He sees mama's meeting. I say the serenity prayer. He knows the serenity prayer. He loves to say the like, say it with uh-huh. me. My husband is 33 years sober in AA. So we definitely come from addictive backgrounds and we have had conversations like, the reason we're doing it is obviously for ourselves, for serenity and peace and being of service. But the main reason is we're being of service to our son. So we don't carry on that baggage that we had, you know, like I'm not going to use my my son to fix mom. Yeah. And that was done to me, that emotional meshment, that codependency, like mm. it is not my son's job to give me a hug to make me feel better. It's not my son's, he gets to see, you know, his father and I have healthy conversations. He gets to see us argue in a constructive way. He gets to see that our bond is is more important, you know, and we're there to serve him. And I don't own him, you know, and I try never to do anything addictive in front of him. You know, I don't like overeat in front of him. I don't have inappropriate conversations. We don't, you know, drink and do all that stuff. So hopefully the buck stops with us, but you know, it's, he, he has his own God. And if that's the path that God's going to have him go down, there's nothing I can do. I just have to keep my side of the street clean. So that's how we see it. Yeah. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, with my daughter, it just, cause her dad overdosed and died her senior year. Mm. So it was, I mean, she's never been a huge drinker, Uh Um, definitely not into other things. She actually now, like, if she, and it started right after her dad died, she would tell, if you had to go to the emergency room or the doctor's office, she tells them she's allergic to pain meds Mm. because she doesn't even want them. Because of her dad dying. Well, that's the thing, though. I didn't drink. I'm not a drinker. I've never done a drug. I, I I didn't, like, smoke pot until in my late 20s. Like, I wasn't interested in that. But I definitely, you know, turned to my addiction to people. You become addicted to relationships. You become addicted to toxic relationships. For me, the addiction was I had – I wanted power and control over everybody else because I felt so powerless inside. So my thing is, like – you can become addicted to video games. You can become addicted to anything, honestly. So please, the amount of time I play games on my phone, I could probably solve world peace because it's insane. I don't even look at the screen time notification when it comes up. I'm like, oh, so sad. No, I'll skip it. Yeah. So we're keeping, you know, video games away from our son. He's not going to have a cell phone. We're going to be really those uncool parents. And I'm actually okay with it. Like, I rather. 
I rather be uncool and him get mad at me than me contributing to him numbing out in life. Like I want to make my, allow my son to feel his feelings, not have to numb out, you know, not to be overwhelmed by them. They should teach that in school. So a big thing that we do is how you get through a feeling. So we teach him, you know, how to have a feeling, how to go through it, how to talk it out, not trying to fix it, not trying to make it better for him, not trying to solve all his problems. So, well, just because they're small, they have big feelings. They just don't have the life experience to cope. Most adults don't. Well, we don't even have the life. Yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? I know so many people that don't want to feel their feelings. I don't even like to feel my feelings. When I'm sad, I like want to get out of it. And I'm like, no, just feel this too shall pass. This feeling won't kill you. But yeah, yeah, their feelings are out of control. (laughs) Just like us. You know, I mean, I've been going to trauma therapy for like a year now And it's really Mm -hmm. helped because I had so many toxic people in my life that I would, I I just Mm -hmm. wouldn't have cut out before. I just stayed in the mess. Yeah. 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 No, you got to cut out those toxic people. I mean, those are the people that everybody thinks it's like just toxic romance, but it's really family members. It's really friends. Those are. Oh, mine was family members and friends. That's who mine was. It wasn't a love interest. Those are the most difficult to cut out too. It's like you go through this first separation. We call them qualifiers, the people that bring you into the rooms, which it's like usually a love interest. So someone comes in because they're so heartbroken and suicidal and they want to go back to this toxic relationship or they cheated on somebody and now feel that feeling. So that you get rid of it. You go through that withdrawal. We call it a withdrawal. Like you withdraw from that person. And then that's when the real work comes. That's when you actually have to look at every single relationship in your life. And usually they are all toxic and they're all out of balance and unavailable. Because if you're picking unavailable people or you're using your sexuality, really it means you're unavailable. So it's like you have to turn in and look at you and who you surround in your life. Yeah. And once you start cutting those toxic people out and having um, solid uh, boundaries with them, it's amazing how quiet your mind gets. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what boundaries does. We think boundaries are like boring or I always thought when I was setting up boundaries with people that I was like, wait, my life, I can't flirt or intrigue. My life's going to be boring. I'm not having any drama. Like I have to show, I'm like, I have to show up when I say I'm going to show up. I have to make amends for when I've done wrong or somebody's done wrong to me. What do you, that sounds like the most boring existence. But it is like the most freeing and the most is. is such a beautiful thing to have boundaries because it protects you and it protects the other person from you. Because me as an addict, I like to act out. I like to, you know, manipulate control and you know, <laughs> that's not a good thing. You're like, hey, come on, let's do this. Right? But that that shit will kill you and it almost killed me you know there's some moments that i put myself in where i you know and you saw in chapter 1 you know the the dreaded confrontation with two um 
aka ATL and NYC. I was wondering if that, I was yeah. wondering, yeah, I was wondering if that actually happened. And that was one of my questions. And then I crossed it off and I was like, no, probably maybe that one, one didn't happen. You can yeah. ask me that. Yeah. That one actually did happen. I usually don't tell people what happened and what doesn't happen because I love them to like try to yeah. guess. But that, that, that one did happen. Yes. That was, um, not one of my finest moments. <laughs> Did you have that revelation at that time at the, that that's when you hit your rock bottom or was it later on? It was later on. Honestly, when I wrote the yeah. book, I, I wrote it like a long 45 minute share. You know, I have I speak all over and I have these shares and I wanted to make it where you're reflecting back and you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So all my bottoms are kind of mixed together and amplified. Some of them are amplified and some of them are put in different locations, but as a sex and love addict, you have so many moments where you're like, can I go this way and like choose the right thing? Or can I go back and do the same thing over and over again? And majority of the time you go back and do the same thing. So that wasn't my bottom bottom. I have a question. Would you ever consider turning your book into a movie? Yes. Yes, I would. I actually wrote it like a television show in a movie when I was writing it because being an actor, I'm so used to reading scripts and mm. that descriptiveness. And I, and I pictured the character of Roxanne because when I was writing it, I first wrote it like a memoir. It was a pure memoir. Right. Mm. And I wrote it in 45 days. I, I literally just came through and I've never wanted to write a book. You do not understand. Like my husband was like, I feel like you should take this writing, writing course. And I was, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'd be like, bitch, I'd be like, you write the book. I'm busy. I know. I was like, I was, I was literally shooting Lucifer. And I was like, what? I have a job. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not. Yeah. And he just kept nagging me. And I was like, why are you? And he, I said, I'm dyslexic. I can't even write a complete sentence. Why are you bothering me right now? I failed English. Like, And he just kept doing it. And by the sixth time, he looked at me like very seriously. And he said, listen, it's not that much money. It's 90 days. If you don't like to buy the second class, you can quit and tell no one. Like no one mm -hmm. has to know. Like only I will know. Don't tell your sister because my sister's a writer. My dad's a writer and all this stuff. No pressure. Like, yeah, right. I was like, okay, I won't tell any. I, so I finally said yes. So I wrote it in 45 days as a memoir. But then when I was doing the rewrites and working on it with my editor, all these other memories started coming back and other people's stories over the decade and mm -hmm. and my imagination as an actor and the voices started coming out and I just like put it all in there and it just became this other person. So when I was writing Roxanne, she wasn't me, but she was me, but she's so mm -hmm. many other people, you know? And right. yeah. I would love it to be made into a movie or a television show because I feel like there's been one show that talked about love addiction. It was called Love on Netflix. And I it did not represent our community at all. And our community is so... I'm sitting here trying to think if I've watched it because I'm addicted to Netflix. Well, yeah. So they only talk about it. They only talk about it once at in the first episode. And it's a guy story. And I'm like, I'm so over guy story mm. sex addicts. We got shame. We got Californication. We've got love. We got – and it's just not a good representation of what this society looks like. And it's such a shame stigma that I'm like, let's break open the doors and like really – 
show it what it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, feeling, then the downfalls too. I mean, I visited, I I worked at a jails in downtown Los Angeles for two and a half years. Every single woman in the jail was there for sex love addiction. Like she sold for her partner. She sold herself. She prostituted. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had friends murdered over this addiction. I've had friends commit suicide. So Mm -hmm. it's just, I just really, if we could get it on television, I think it would just even make a bigger splash and help people heal. I would. I agree. I have to agree. I think it would because I think if it, you could be my agent, yeah. Because being oh, present, I I've been saying that for a while. Well, because presenting it, you in should that be my format, agent. <laughs> no, no, no. The part about no, the movie, I'm yeah. <laughs> I could. Yeah, I could wing thank it, you. you. Know. <laughs> but it could be such a non-threatening way to bring this. Yeah for families to watch and discuss because just like with the book, there's pieces of your life you think about Uh yourself, you're like, damn girl, (laughs) that was not your finest moment. And then there's other people you think about and you're like, they need to listen or read this, you know, listen or read the book because yeah, they got a lot going on. No, if anybody's (laughs) listening, but think about your friends, like how many get in toxic relationships over and over again? How many stay in bad relationships? How many keep going back to bad relationships or amplify the person they go out? How many go on DMs and try to like get the likes, Mm -hmm. the attention, the validation? How many women and men use their sexuality to get what they want, to manipulate and control others? I mean, it is crazy that we do not talk about this. And every single one of my friends have had bad relationships with parents, friendships, mm-hmm. lovers. And that's what it's about. You take away a chemical addiction, there's a family issue. You take away the family issue, there's a relationships across the board. And we mm-hmm. just do not talk about it, especially from a woman's point of view. And that's, I hope it does. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Whatever God has planned is what I always say. Yeah, I really hope it does because I think it could, well, it's kind of like the increased dialogue Mm. there is now around mental illness. It needs to be to that same level with this because so many things are intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're struggling with one, you can end up with the other. Like, it's just which in some cases, unfortunately, is like the perfect storm and is probably when someone does take their own life. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, my husband took his own life. So, you know, it's just when people are struggling with different things, you just don't know where their mind's going to end up. And the number one reason if you lose your sobriety in another program is over relationships. Mm-hmm. Relationships are the number one reason why people lose their time. I see that, yeah. That's so crazy to it's, think about. Yeah, yeah. I got a question. Okay, go. <laughs> um, is that uh, while reading the book okay. and – well, like through the years, I've had friends that get in one relationship after another and they're bad and they stay too long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's like it would be or I would they're friends of friends. And I would think to myself, oh, they're the type of girl that can't be without a man, you know, that they just have to have that mm-hmm. constant companionship. But then in reading your book, it like the the light goes off where, oh, that's what that is. That's it's a it's something deeper than that. 
Yeah. It's a fear of being alone. It's a fear of intimacy. It's fear of not being worthy enough. So you're going back and like overlapping relationships or going from relationship to relationship to relationship to find your self-worth, to find love when really you should never do that. You should pause. You should see, wait, what happened bad in my last relationship? Look at that. Go look at your character defects, what you brought into the relationship, who you chose. Look at who you chose because normally that's a that's a mirror for yourself. What you're, everybody always likes to play the victim, but really you play a part in a bad relationship. You either put up with mm-hmm. it. You didn't have a, you know, stand up for yourself. You put up with bad behavior. You yourself did bad behavior and put your own, own character defects on someone else and it's like people just keep going from relationship bringing their baggage with them and it's like you are never going to get filled there is nobody out there that is ever going to fix you be perfect enough be be the ideal partner Mm -hmm. be your soulmate like it just doesn't exist and I'm just tired of that dialogue Mm -hmm. like all the songs all the movies that saying like Go search for this person. You have to get married. It's just like, oh, let's get over it already. (laughs) Like, it's not true. It's not going to fix you. So I have a question because I would be on the other end of that where I became like sexually anorexic. Oh yeah, that's a that's a that's a gnarly beast. The anorexia side. It, it. is. What it's worse. It's harder than the other. Well, that's your fear of intimacy. It truly is. You are shut down. And when I'm in my anorexia state, especially with my husband, you know, we've been together almost 17 years and it's like, I'm like, wait, no, sex is supposed to be dirty and and wrong and a secret and like a high, like I want to get high, like give me the butterflies, give me the intensity, give me the passion, give me the forbidden. The forbidden, the falling in love, like the first time touch, first kiss, first blah. And it's like- that does not last and i never realized that so what right. happens is once it gets like comfortable and too close and intimate i shut down sexually and that's because i'm afraid of intimacy <laughs> it's too close yeah. i feel too seen <laughs> you know it's too much work it's it's like it's not a high it's a connection and it's like what do you mean you want to like stare into my eyes and us have a conversation and like huddle afterwards? Like I do see, I'm like crawling up my skin right now, but it's like, (laughs) but yeah. If you could go, that'd be great. Yeah. Like, okay. High five. Let's like, see ya. But even when you're with someone and you have a bad relationship, then a lot of people turn sexually anorexic. They're like, it's too much work. It's too much intimacy. I got hurt too bad. I don't want to get abandoned again. And it's like, I'm right there with you. I can do it in a relationship and out of a relationship. But the sexual anorexia is the hardest part of the addiction to break. That one's the tough one. So, yeah. So, what are you so telling what, me? <laughs> yeah. So, what do I do from there? I mean, I'm talking to my therapist about it and stuff, but yeah. You do the opposite bad. of what you're comfortable with. So, like, if you have plans to go out or go on a date. I'm eating an Altoid on that one. (laughs) You then, and you want to break those plans or not go, then you have to force yourself. It's almost like you have to push against your resistance to shut down or to isolate. We like to isolate as anorexics. And usually, 
I know. I love being alone too. I'm like, don't. I, why is my I husband home? It. I love it. I feast on being alone and by myself. Yeah. But here's the thing. We are humans are meant to connect to other people and you do not learn being alone. You do not grow being alone. Yes, if you're going through pain and withdrawal from a bad relationship, you need to be alone to heal. But once you're through that, you have to connect to other human beings. So the first thing I say for people with sexual anorexia is like you have to lean into the uncomfortability. It's really hard. Like you have to lean in when you want to lean out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is I know it's torture. Wrap it around my neck. <laughs> torture. <laughs> no, it's true. No one talks about how horrible the sexual anorexia because underneath, honestly, after almost 12 years, underneath this addiction, every sex and love addict, every person that goes out there and has one night stands, swiping mm -hmm. left and right, going back to toxic relationships, you know, masturbating, going to porn, you know, going from relationship to relationship like I did, cheating on their partners, you know, always looking outside of themselves. Underneath all that acting out behavior is a sexual anorexic that they're actually afraid of intimacy. <laughs> like they don't want to be seen. I'm like, damn, this is, I have to publicly <laughs> acknowledge this. Like I typically do, but. Ugh. I know it's, it's I not know. fun, but here's the thing. Now, you know, and once you know, you can do better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at her. <laughs> if you can see her face right now, you're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I don't it want seems like to. a lot of work. Yeah, and it's our it's underneath. And when I turn cold, it's because underneath I'm af afraid to be seen. I don't feel like I'm worthy enough. I don't feel like I'm really worthy of anybody's unconditional love. I'm scared of being abandoned. I'm scared of intimacy, and it's just overwhelming. And I think when you come from a background, if of addiction where you can't, people do, do, don't show up for you. The basic people don't show up for you. You go into survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, the last thing you want to do is be intimate with someone and show your like heart and your rawness. So you're, yeah. I shut down, but that kills me. It will kill me if I shut down. It will kill me if right. my son t turns and he's like, I don't want to play with you, mommy. Like you did that the other day. And I, and every ounce of me just wanted to put on that mask of like, fine. <laughs> ah, fuck you, little boy. Like I like had that thought. Like, <laughs> I'm out of here, life. bitch. What do you mean you don't want to play with Make me? Make your own lunch. Right? But it's like, that's my anorexia. He just hurt my feelings. He hit that that core where I don't think I'm worthy of love or show, being shown up for. So he hit that button, and, but every ounce of me not to turn anorexic, I had to like lean into, no, you love more. You love more. Oh, you're closing down. You're cold. No, open. Go open. Go like you lean into opening up, staying open. So that's like one of the yeah. main tools. Damn. It's rough. rough. It's rough. But it's yeah. the best because I feel everything. I'm not, I'm not right. numb anymore. And, and that's the thing, you know, Dr. Cass, you know, you numb mm. one emotion, you numb all emotions. You don't get to decide if yeah. you feel happiness, but you don't want to feel sad or disappointment or, you know, you numb everything. And that's how I lived for so long. Well, 
and you know, it's like I've worked through so many different mm -hmm. feelings, but just when it comes to that real intimacy piece with another person, I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Close for yeah. business. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It makes me want to crawl out of my skin, as you saw. I mean, we I had to do like an intimacy exercise with my husband and we had to like hug and I couldn't like crawl out of the hug. And it couldn't and it couldn't turn yeah. sexual or anything. We had to like hug with no clothes on and it was just so uncomfortable just to be held without like you know, manufacturing or putting on a show or playing a role. And it's just right. those, those things are so uncomfortable. And I get it. You know, I get it. If anybody out there is struggling in a long-term relationship, you know, having that sexuality, not using it, you know, on and off. Yeah. And I mean, we consider you like a Renaissance <laughs> woman because you're a wife, a mother, um, um, actress, director, producer, writer, you're all these things, but what do you feel like really is your biggest passion or do you really have one? Oh my God. That's such a good question. Um, honestly, if I could answer that, it's probably being of service to other people that are suffering with this disease that actually fills my soul where I feel the most in my skin that I'm connecting with one other person and helping them get out of their deadly patterns and not live years and years and years in this disease. You know, it's going and being of service and sharing that journey. That's where I feel my most like in myself. Yeah. Yeah, probably the most Yeah, authentic. because for so many years I had a mask and then I became an actor and I had on more masks and makeup and outfits. <laughs> and then you're professionally trained yeah. and paid to just fool people, basic, you know, and just be this whole yeah. other person. Yeah, I mean, I told you in the book, Dr. Kath, my therapist in the book was like, you pick the worst <laughs> profession for your career. You live in fantasy right? and you become oh other God. people. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, what's what's wrong with that? And she's like, you are literally <laughs> hollow. I was hollow. Right. And you're like, well, this is my yeah. moneymaker. But until I was in too much pain and I couldn't do the moneymaker anymore. I couldn't keep putting on those masks. And it was like, okay, either you're going to feel like this the rest of your life and be chasing this thing you'll never get, or you have to do the work. And I was willing to let go of being an actor, you know, and I, all that stuff I wrote about, you know, yeah. hitting my rock bottom with the withdrawal, all that stuff is real. Like I had moments where I was like, okay, take away being an actor. Yeah. I didn't work for the first year of my yeah. recovery. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like a whole person dying and a whole fantasy dying and a whole thing like this yeah. career will fix me. And it's like, no, the, the money doesn't fix mm -hmm. you. The job doesn't fix you. The clothes, the, everything, nothing fixed you on the outside. Nothing will ever fix. And that's why, you know, I spoke out too as, a, as an act, as a working actor, like you can want this thing, this Mm -hmm. followers on Instagram, this job in television, people admiring you. And it means nothing mm -hmm. if you're empty inside. It means absolutely yeah. nothing. But obviously with as much service as you give to everybody and how passionate you are, you're not, you're hiding that 
emptiness because you're you obviously have so much love for all of the people that you help and being of service that that's just it shows that 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 the disease makes you like bury that almost for protection oh yeah well because yeah because people terrify me you know people actually terrify me and i have to like see someone I, I i always talk about the compare and despair you know chapter seven it's like i have to be better than or less than somebody and majority of the time i was less than and it's like no now i just see people as they're just humans just like me and they're just struggling and when i can have empathy and compassion and help someone else that helps me stay sober every time i help someone every time i answer a dm every time i do a, an interview or write an article i am doing it to help someone else to for me to stay sober Honestly, yeah. because when I help someone else, then that goes, okay, I'm, I help someone else. I, I'm okay. Like I can be of service. Then that helps me stay sober every time I, with my clients or, you know, one of my sponsees or just even going on set and talking to somebody going through a bad breakup. Anytime I'm of service outside of myself is the best place for me to be. Cause I'll go into ego. I'll go into ego thinking it has to do with me and it doesn't. I do that quite a bit. I love your honesty. <laughs> yeah, me too. As you can tell, we're very I love good. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I really do. Because like, I mean, um, Jenny and I were talking mm -hmm. the other day. It was about some celebrities or something. And I'm like, she's a sex oh, yeah. addict. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, okay, now I just sound all judgy. But then at the same time, you want to tell that person, look, you keep bouncing around you need to love yeah. yourself because you're just not putting a man down for a Yeah, no, I believe me, the, this industry I live in is like littered with sex and love addicts. First <laughs> of all, there's a lot in the rooms that I'm in, but like I've helped a lot. But yeah, is this industry just breeds wanting that attention, that outside validation, the someone to love you unconditionally, all that over and over again. And it's like, I have friends that are, a-list people. And I'm like, she's got it. You got to stop. You got to stop. You have to be alone. You have to heal. You can't keep going from person to person thinking they're going to be the one to complete you. I'm just so over that narrative, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because if you're not comfortable in your own skin and like yourself, why the hell is anybody else going to like no one's going to No, And then they'll go to like shopping. And I'm like, the shopping ain't going to fix you. That new house is not going to fix you. That <laughs> new Bentley is not going to fix you. Getting pregnant is not going to fix you. Getting a boob, oh, getting God, a boob no. job is not going to fix you. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so I'm just glad to be on the other side of it and that I'm not doing that. But I also then get to hold up a mirror and say, hey, there's like hope on the other side. Come. Come if yeah. you want, but if you don't, that's okay too. That's your choice. So it's always giving people the choice. Mm -hmm. Like, here's what I have. Here's the experience I have. You can take it or leave it, but I'll still be here if you want to ever get help. Right. And people reading your so. story can see that. Yeah. And yeah. that just means I've. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, definitely. Because um, when we were talking the other day, that was one of the things we were discussing was just I could we could tell the importance you felt about being of service yeah. to others. It's everything to me. Honestly, it's everything. And that's the yeah. book is and the podcast is about being of service to others. I didn't write the book for me. 
I didn't even want to write the book. Like I, like I said, it was, I feel like it was my God or higher power wrote the book. And it was like, this book has nothing to do with me. It's, it's to help other people that are, that are suffering, that don't understand it and don't understand what this disease looks like and how it manifests. And mm-hmm. hopefully it helps people. I mean, that's the only reason I wrote it. Um, Jenny and I know about your mm-hmm. podcast, um, The Secret, but would you like to tell the listeners we yeah. do have a little bit about it? Because it is really, really <gasps> Thanks. good. Thanks. I'm it is really good. Thank you. Yeah, it it's is. called Secret Life Podcast or Secret Life. And it's, you know, I did it after I wrote the article for HuffPost. And I remember, and I say this really specifically, I remember the morning HuffPost article was coming out and I was me saying, hey, I'm at Sex and Love love addict in recovery. And I kid you not, I, at 9am when it was coming out, I was like, Oh my God, what did I do? What am I doing? I ruined my career. I'm never going to work again. Everybody that hires me is going to think I'm like some sex crave maniac, you know, like trying to, (laughs) trying to like ruin them. Yeah. So I panicked and then what happened two hours later, nothing happened. <laughs> I was like, such a humbling, <laughs> it was such a humbling experience. I was like, okay, lady, like yeah. get over yourself. <laughs> like no one cares. Literally nothing happened, but here's what happened. Something did happen. Mm-hmm. That last bit of stigma and shame that I didn't realize I was carrying around for after 10 years, because it was right after I got my 10-year chip, just vanished. It was like I became my full self, like all the warts, all the flaws, just saying, here it is into the world. Mm-hmm. You can judge me. I don't care. You can throw rocks at me. You, you can don't call matter. me a whore. You can call mm-hmm. me like I use my looks, whatever you want to say, or I wish I met her when she was in her disease. All that stuff. Like uh, that's so yes, gross. but it was like it just rolled off yeah. my back. Ugh. And I was like, Yeah. I'm so okay inside. You can say anything to me and it's okay. And that's what happened. And but then that week it hit two million people downloaded the article and read it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What a great Yeah, and then all these people all over the world started reaching out to me saying, I did that, my girlfriend did that, my dad did that, my cousin, you know, thank you for, I've never heard of this. I did the 40 questions, like I'm going to a meeting. All these people started reaching out to me and what happened, then the world shut down with the pandemic. Three days later, the world shut down. Mm, of course yeah. I and I woke up a month later and I had this thing at 3 a.m. And I said, Secret Life Podcast, I allow other people to come on and share that last bit of secret that they've held from the past or they still have in the present. They can change their names anonymous. They can tell me who they are. And so I got a mic and I interviewed a friend and I interviewed my husband to see if I even wanted to do mm-hmm. it. And then I got 125 interviews in a matter of like a month wow, all over anonymous majority of them are anonymous. So it's every, my first anonymous one is Kristen's Mm. episode and she shot herself in the chest with a shotgun because she couldn't reach perfectionism. Mm. And she walks me through after she shot herself in in the chest and what that felt like and all that. So that was the first one. And it was just that moment of like, Oh my God, this is bigger than me. 
And I just, people all over the world started just writing me their secrets, asking to come on and I changed their names. And so we've had like, you know, using abortion as a form form of birth control, you know, stealing food from Jeff Bezos at Whole Foods. You know, (laughs) we've had people coming out stories. The one of the hardest one was Mm -hmm. this woman in the Midwest. She, her OBGYN sexually assaulted her after she gave birth to her son um, right after. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like really dark secrets. And then it's some really funny ones at the same time. So I'm really proud of it. It's, you know, we have some celebrities come on. Olivia Munn came on, Cheryl Burke and um, Robert Gann and Janet. We've had big people come on, but I really like mm-hmm. the ones where they're anonymous and they just spill out everything they bad done right. or thought, you know? So, yeah. Because it's so much more raw. Like, I have listened to some of your episodes. I want to say probably like yeah. four because I was hyper focused on the book and listened to it twice because you know how we get. So, um, but it is interesting because like, there are so many things that you think about and you're like, oh my God, I can totally yeah, relate. That's that. what I try to do. And I always, my whole motto is tell me your secret and I'll tell you mine. So every episode I try to reveal something about myself so they don't feel like they're the only ones telling. And it's a good, it's just two people connecting on a, a raw, authentic level. And there's no judgment. Cause I always say, listen, you haven't done anything. I haven't thought about doing done almost did you know fantasized about doing so you can't tell me i've either heard it done it almost did it or someone i knew do it because i've just been in recovery for so long so i just it's just one of the best things i've ever done and we've released 67 episodes so far and we have 74 in the can still yeah wow now, do you do like block recording, like block scheduling your energy? What? Sorry, am I not? No, you can totally. Yeah. <laughs> she can yeah. edit it out. But like, do you block schedule interviews so that way you can like get a whole bunch of them? Well, done? just like- when I started recording, I just like the world shut down. So I just put it out there. I blasted it. And then oh, I just had, yeah. so I was doing five, sometimes four to five interviews in a day. So I was just getting them done because I knew if the world's opened up, I'd get busy again. And then I'm glad I did it like that because I started having to edit the book and getting it, you know, doing that Mm -hmm. whole process. That's like torture. And then the audio book was like the worst. It was like. I bet trying to record that thing. I bet you were like, if I have to reread this one more Yeah, I'm dyslexic. Everyone can suck Even though I read it, I'm still dyslexic and reading out loud Mm -hmm. is uncomfortable. And then it's like, wait, I have to read all these deepest, darkest secrets in front of a sound guy that doesn't know me. And I'm talking like, it gets really (laughs) sexual. And when I was reading, I was like, holy shit, I can't (laughs) believe I wrote that. (laughs) <laughs> like the threesome one and then just like the vagina oh gate. I, I laughed at my yeah. desk. I laughed at my desk at that yeah. one. I was in my, in my office. I worked for a CPA <laughs> and I was like with my ear pods and literally laughing. And if anyone saw me on the cameras, they're going to want to not know what I was laughing at. <laughs> Somebody the other day told I'm me she was, so she was in Target buying diapers while listening to chapter eight. The three songs. She was like worried people were hearing, like in the diapers. Yeah. It just that was the best chapter to write. But can you imagine 
reading that out loud in front of like some guys, just like all the worst things you've done, said, and like put yourself in, it was just torture. I'm, I'm pure torture for two weeks. Pure torture. It has to be because <laughs> I, I know sometimes even on our podcast where we're like airing all yeah. our stuff. Like afterwards, mm-hmm. I'm like, dear Lord. What did I just Jesus. say? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. But the whole thing is, it's honestly unfiltered. Well, I have to be my authentic self. Like, I can't just pick yeah. and choose. Like, I hear, uh, believe me, I, I mean, hear in my you. Mind, I can't. <laughs> you know, because like, then if, I, if I'm picking and choosing, I'm just a yeah. fraud. No, I, I agree. It was, but it was bad. And, but here's the thing. My husband was like, so now we have to do the audio book. Cause he's like, produce everything with me. And I go, what, excuse mm-hmm. me, what are you talking about? And I literally, that was my, <laughs> and he goes, uh, yeah. And they were all like, yeah, the author reads the book. And I said, can't we hire an actor? And my husband looked at me and he goes, yeah. you're an actor. I was like, yeah. But, but I, don't I said, but I hired. didn't. I didn't write yeah. it thinking I would have to read it and record it in my own voice. Like this was not right. It's not like you can have a secret identity. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like I was so like that's how much I didn't know I was writing the book for it to actually be published and put out of the world. Like I had no clue that I was then gonna have to like record it. Oh, like re- yeah, right. right? Oh. That makes sense, though, because then it's like, okay, well, this is some next level shit I'm dealing with right now. (laughs) That's how it is, but I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad you guys enjoyed it. I'm glad that I put it out there because if it helps one person, which I already have heard it has, it's meant everything to me. It's just like it made it worth it. Every every hardship, every, you know, the best thing was my mom read it. Yes. Really? What was what was her reaction? The day after it came out, she called me on FaceTime and she read it in like 24 hours. And I was like, oh, my God. And she said she started crying and she said, I'm so proud of you. And she said, it's so great. And then she said, and some of the things you've done, I've done, too. And it was just... It was such a healing moment. My husband was next to me and he started crying. And I was like, you know, I was like, oh, my God, thanks, mom. And I got off the phone like I had no reaction. And I was like, yeah, <gasps> I just hysterically right? started bawling. So just that moment to like have that bonding moment with my mom and she really saw me. And she said one other thing. She said for the first time in 10 years, I understand your addiction completely. So it was a beautiful mm-hmm. moment. And I'm really glad I wrote the book. It was worth it right there. Yeah. It was, a, yeah, right? yeah, it was a very beautiful moment. So, so I mean, again, I, I'm just so grateful that you've spent this time with us because, I mean, of yeah. course, I have my own assignment to work <laughs> on, but whatever. You do. <laughs> you have your tools now. <laughs> you can always join a sexual anorexia medium with me, too. <laughs> I have the information. But it's no. Thursday night. It's tonight. Just so you know. <laughs> Shut the front door. Oh my god! <laughs> I have a seat. 
I'll have, have a seat there feeling. for you. I'll warm it for you. I'll keep it when you're ready. <laughs> no, I know I should, honestly. We should probably talk about this when the recording starts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Jen, do you have any other questions that you want to ask? I don't think so. We don't Not that are any hostage. that are appropriate for <laughs> well thank you not that that wouldn't air anybody's dirty secrets <laughs> oh wait i do have one more question you're working on a second book yes book two roxanne sober dating i'm rewriting oh. right now yeah it's like her next 10 rules she lives by and how to sober date in a healthy That's way awesome yeah so yeah. now it could become a series yeah, so, well, actually, there yeah. was three books. There's a third book that yeah. I have it outlined. The second book's already written. It's just in rewrites right now. But the third book, and then my husband turned to me, like, oh, wow. a couple months ago, and he's like, there's a fourth book. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Leave me You're alone. You're like, bitch, hop off, man. I didn't even want to do the first one. <laughs> I know. And then he explained <laughs> it to me, and I was like, oh, you're right. Ugh. So yeah, it's four. It's a four book series. So we'll see. But this next one, I'm really proud of because I think it will even resonate more because it's about the dating world and not just sober dating as a sex and love addict. But what we learn can be take anybody could take it and have a better dating experience. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it Thank is. Thank you for sharing that information. I do. You, so you don't have a release date yet. I, I really I really admire that you wrote the books yourself and I, I and didn't use a ghostwriter. And then Thank how you. you said that it wouldn't be yours if you did. Yeah, I, I got offered. I, I got offered to do it. That's a lot to undertake. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the editor I used was really kind and gentle and never made me feel, you know, yeah. if I put the wrong punctuation or <laughs> – so I, I just really had someone around me yeah. that was really gentle and just like t showed me different. And she said, you know, you're breaking a lot of rules with this book, mm -hmm. but it's actually okay. You can do whatever you want. And I said, oh my God, thank you. So her allowing me to write it how I speak instead right. of like how books are written really helped me just like go, okay, I'm yeah. just going to do it all. Like I'll just do it and see how it goes. But thank you for saying that. That really means a lot. Will you come back when your second book comes out or another time? Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have an estimated release date for your second book? Oh, my God. I don't know. Probably next year. Probably the end of next year. Um, yeah. I was. They were trying to give me a deadline, like, at the beginning of next year. And I was like, I, I, I can't write. You're I like, can't commit to that message. Right You're lucky I'm doing this. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. But you've been an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you, guys. It's so wonderful to get to know you and just break bread and just put it all out there. And I'm so yeah. grateful. I just, I do want people to be more open to this subject and understand that it impacts women as much as it does men. Yeah. Yes, it does. And the love addiction really impacts a lot of men too. You know, people don't talk about that. So thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's been a pleasure it has and been. I truly appreciate you sharing. Mm -hmm. Thanks, thank you guys. so, so much. We're going to put all of your links in the show notes as well. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll message you on Instagram. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See you in the
in the meetings. <laughs> All, right. All right, bye, bye. guys. Take care.